The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Glad everybody's out today. Um, I want to continue today in um, a series of lessons that we uh, began last uh, Sunday. So if you missed last Sunday, you can, you can find that uh, on the website. It's the first of three lessons uh, on hope that are from the book of Romans. Uh, hope is a key part of waiting on anything. And this is a time of year, at least in the, the Christian world, uh, throughout the world, uh, where, where hope is often talked about, waiting is often talked about because these weeks leading up to um, Christmas Day or, or in, in the old liturgical high church world at least called Advent, which just means the coming of the Lord, a word that's used in the Bible a zillion times. Um, we're not talking about you know, liturgy or anything like that. What I'm talking about basically though is this idea of hope because hope is a big part of the Christian walk. And there are key three discussions of hope in Romans, the last of which gives us the title for our series. This comes from Romans 15, the lesson we'll talk about next week, where Paul says to abound in hope. Hope is to be overflowing from the Christian life. We're to be abounding in it. The first of these instances is in Romans 4 and 5, um, which is what we looked at last week in a lesson called The Fundamentals of Hope. If you were here, maybe you remember that, where he, he drew lessons, Paul did, uh, from the life of Abraham in terms of what hope, what trusting in God um, looks like, believing in his promises to the ex extent that you order your life accordingly. We got some just basic nuts and bolts about what hope uh, is, is uh, composed of in that lesson. Today we turn our attention to Romans chapter 8, and we'll be talking about the future of hope. What future does hope hold out for us as believers? Uh, in chapter 8 of Romans, we learn that as recipients of God's grace, as Christians, we enjoy a standing with God in the present, uh, which doesn't, on the surface, sound a lot like we're having to wait on anything, any of the good stuff. It's already here. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, we are, uh, as he says, in Christ Jesus. The relationship is so close in the present that it's just that we're in Him already. Uh, we are God's own children, as Romans 8, 16 uh, says we're no longer slaves, we're his children now, uses the present tense. And then in verses 14 through 16 of Romans 8, he says that we are being led by the Spirit of God now. That doesn't sound like waiting, does it? That sounds like blessings that we have now by virtue of our acceptance of the grace of Jesus Christ. So they're present realities in, a, in the relationship with God. On the other hand, um, enjoying this relationship with God hardly means that we get a, you know, like a get out of struggles free card. 
I became a Christian. Why is all this stuff happening? I'm a believer. What's going on? Why aren't things working out? Why isn't God hearing my prayers? Those feelings, that part of the human plight applies to Christians just as it does to unbelievers. And there is still a lot of waiting. And the question then becomes, how do we wait? Everybody's going to wait. <laughs> uh, nobody's in control of the world. There's a lot of stuff you're going to want and need and, 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 and really require to thrive that will not be there at different you know, junctures in your life. How will we wait? Will we wait well or will we wait poorly? A lot of the answer to that has to do with this little word, Bible word called hope. So, um, he says that even though we have these blessings of being led by the Spirit of God and being uh, considered God's very children, that still being children, the children of God, will involve suffering. And that's what I want to talk about first this morning. The reality of suffering. Suffering is part and parcel of life in the present. And you know, we're, we're, we're in the holiday season right now. And this may be like, wah, wah. Really? That's his topic? I want to tell you something, though. The concept of suffering and the reality of suffering probably applies to about as many people in the holiday season as joy does. And especially when they walk in and see these trees with words like joy and peace and hope, it just backlights the things in their life which don't look like that. I'm, I'm fairly certain there are people in our audience right now who, who have tinges of that every time. The holidays are rough for people. There's whole, you know, counseling treatment, uh, you know, regimens for this kind of thing. So suffering's part of life, uh, not, not just now, but even now. Um, look what he says here in Romans 8, the text that was read just a minute ago by Sean. Romans 8, 17, he says, If we're children, then we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. Provided we suffer with him. He doesn't present suffering for Christians as something that is optional or something that is exceptional. And I think a lot of times, especially in the modern West, at least if you grew up like I did, you know, in a middle-class household with, from a worldwide perspective and a historical perspective, tons of privilege. I don't even know what I don't know about how privileged I am. And I know pretty much I'm a much more privileged than a lot of people. Am I, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of suffering. And there are probably other people in this audience this morning and a lot of people in our country, in our part of the world, who are like, you know, I'm not really suffered that much. Um, suffering for, you know, for some of us is, you know, not getting the parking place that's close to the door. You got to walk like 75 seconds instead of five seconds. And boy, man, what a day I'm having. You know, you know, that kind of thing. Well, we act like it's, 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 it's an odd thing. Like, why are we having to suffer? First Peter tells us that we shouldn't think of it that way. Peter, the whole, the whole epistle of First Peter is an epistle on Christians suffering. And one of the things he says is that we should regard it as somewhat normal. We should embrace it even. He says in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's basically saying it's not strange to suffer as a Christian. In fact, here he says in Romans 8, 17, provided we suffer with him. When my dad was sick and we were all hanging out at the hospital 24-7, I remember one of the things my mom said was, well, we're suffering right now, but we're not going through anything that Jesus didn't go through. Like, he knows. He gets it because he suffered. He came to suffer with us. That's what compassion is, to suffer with. And now he's saying we've got to return, return that. We've got to suffer with him. So it's part and parcel of life in the present age. 
And, and more broadly than just Christian suffering, verse 18 says that suffering is part of existence in this present time. For I consider, Paul writes in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time. It's part of the present age. It's part of the present phase in, in, in world history. Christians and all people live in a way that involves suffering. And it's, it's part of life. Friedrich Nietzsche said, to live is to suffer. To live is to suffer. And he was merely noting what a much wiser sage had said millennia before. Job, in Job 14, one said, man who is born of a woman, that's most of us, is few of days and full of trouble. In other words, you don't live very long and the days you have aren't always peachy keen, right? It's short and it's, it can be really tough. So, just some statistics. Because a lot of us, I think, don't, don't relate to suffering. Some of us do. Suffering has many forms. It's not always physical and, you know, it's sometimes psychological or emotional or relational. But there's some suffering in the world still today, a lot of it. Nine million people are killed every year. I'm just giving you World Health Organization and other organizations like that who count these things. Nine million people per year in the world to now die of starvation. Nine million die of starvation. Seven million people a year die prematurely from air pollution, just from various diseases caused by breathing difficulties. Seven million a year. 41 million people die every year from non-communicable diseases and 17 million die every year from infectious diseases. Many of which we don't even think are a big deal. We pop a pill. So there's still a lot of suffering in the world. And even if you escape though, if those are things that sound far-fetched to you and it's something that somebody else has, it's an advertisement on TV, it's a, just a number, um, well, get ready because your body is going to start failing you at some point due to something, right? Nobody gets out of here, the world, not here, alive. <laughs> Nobody. And Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, just to continue the negativity, you know, Debbie Downer theme so far, get ready, it's, it's getting better. We're, we're talking about hope, but I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta get some buy-in. Look at, look at how the message uh, relates this passage in Ecclesiastes. Uh, you're probably familiar with it. It's a little more direct uh, than, than some of the other versions. Honor and enjoy your Creator while you're still young. Before the years take their toll and your vigor wanes. Before your vision dims and the world blurs. You know, when I came to Fuqua, I didn't have these things. I didn't have them for like I mean, five or six years ago. As the winter years... Uh, and the winter years keep you close to the fire. Elderly people are cold all the time. That's why when you visit them, you're like sweating, right? Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. I still, Rick, I sweat a lot. Me and Rick, me and Rick we like the air down. Um, I want to sleep with that many blankets. And I don't want to be sweaty either, which means you do the math, you know? Or in the, sun, in the winter, not, not turning up the heat and my wife freezing. But that happens. In, in old age, verse 3, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. 
The hum of the household fades away. You're awakened now by a bird song. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Now that's a, a, a looser, you know, idea for idea translation, which is typical for Eugene Peterson's The Message. But that, anybody who's aging knows that's the case. Suffering's built in, in many ways. And here's the thing that Romans 8 is saying. And we need to train ourselves not to just read right over this, because this is actually one of the points in Romans 8. It's not just about human suffering in Romans 8. Human suffering is, in fact, in Romans 8, linked with the suffering of all creation. That's one of the main points being made in this paragraph that we, it was read for us a minute ago. So look with me at Romans 8, verses 19 and 20. He says in verse 19, for the creation waits. He's just been talking about how we all suffer, suffering of this present time, we have to suffer with him. And then he toggles seamlessly over to this idea about creation suffering. So it's not just that you're aging and suffering and that entropy, you know, this natural tendency toward disorder, toward things unraveling. You don't, as you age, get more and more fit, do you? It's not, we're not Benjamin Button. Is that the movie where he is backwards? Yeah, we're, that, I'm not seeing it, but that, I, it, it, that's not the idea. No, things are starting to get more and more. My body is becoming, you know, disordered. Uh, and, and he says creation's going through the same thing. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption. The creation, all the world order, nature is in bondage to corruption, to decay, to entropy, to unraveling, to becoming chaotic and disordered. It's breaking down. It doesn't naturally build itself up. That's not its default path. It's enslaved. It's in bondage to corruption. And it is craving. It is groaning for. It is longing for uh, the, the freedom that comes from the glory of the children of God. Now, boy, that's a lot going on right there. But I want you to notice, let's at least acknowledge, even if we don't understand it, let's acknowledge the data of the Bible. And we'll talk about maybe what some of this means. But let's first of all notice that he's talking about two kinds of suffering. The suffering of creation and the suffering of humans. The crown of creation, per Psalm 8. Right? He put us just a little lower than the angels or, or God and over the rest of creation. But we're part of it. A special part of it, but a part of it. All of that is suffering. Both of those are suffering. And, and, and they're suffering and they're, the solution to the suffering is somehow bound up together. Don't run away from that addition just because it's a little odd. And it's odd for some historical reasons, things we've inherited theologically, not just because of it's odd conceptually. But don't do that. When you come to something in the Bible that's a little, doesn't fit, maybe you ought to pay more attention to that. Maybe it's trying to get your attention. Let it argue back with you. Don't run over there to something else that's comfortable and ignore parts that, that don't fit. Maybe the model, the interpretive you know, conclusion is a little off and needs to be tweaked. So let's let that sit for a minute. Creation and we are suffering, and somehow our suffering is linked. Because Paul just sort of seamlessly switches from our, our suffering to creation's suffering. And he says that creation is waiting on the freedom from its bondage corruption that comes from the glory of the children of God. So creation's sort of going, hurry up, people. Get your act together. I'm waiting on you. I'm suffering because of you. And you need to do something or get in this new state so that I can have freedom from my bondage. This is creation speaking, if we can personify it. Well, 
the whole created order is involved in all of the suffering. How did the two get linked? How did creation's problems get linked with our problems? I think the answer comes from Genesis chapter 3. And it's been going on ever since, the so-called fall. Remember the sin in the garden? Adam and Eve want to have, you know, be like God and sort of be the, the captain of their own, you know, destiny and call the shots and define themselves and have an identity apart from God. And they abdicate the role that he's given them by this rebellion. And then there are consequences. And we're reading those here in Genesis 3. And to Adam, the Lord said, Behold, you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Look what he says. Cursed is the ground or the earth because of you. Not just a curse on Adam, but because of what Adam did, the earth is cursed. The world is cursed. Nature is cursed. The ground is cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That's not what it looked like before the sin. He was working, but it was fulfilling. It was low-hanging fruit. It was beautiful. He just tended the garden and kept the garden. And now it bears thorns and thistles. And this is how you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's a rosy picture. The whole creation went off the tracks when Adam and Eve did what they did. And it's been groaning ever since. That's what Paul's talking about. Here's a quote from a, a, a writer named J. Richard Middleton talking about Romans 8 and this text that, we, that Sean read a minute ago. He says, according to the first chapters of Genesis, humanity was granted stewardship over their earthly environment. Have dominion, rule over the creation, tend the garden. God invited them into that role with him. But then came the fall, which distorted, but did not abrogate. It didn't end. It did skew our stewardship. So we're still stewards, but we're not very good ones. And look at the analogy here. I like this. Just as an abusive parent can destroy a family, or a dictator can devastate a nation, they're still, they're still the leader or the parents. But man, it can be devastating. In the same way, he says, human corruption has affected that which has been entrusted to our care with the result that the non-human realm, creation, is, um, the, the word no should not be there. What in the world? The, uh, the non-human realm is subjected to futility, Romans 8.20. There are echoes here of the curse on the ground in Genesis 3.17 stemming from human, uh, human disobedience. So, um, both we and creation groan under the burden of our suffering. That's what he says here in Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth into now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We also, he says, groan inwardly. So the creation groans and we groan as we wait for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. All creation is groaning in futility. Look at this word here. This is Romans 8.20. The creation was subject or subjected to futility. Does anybody have a version that has a different word? Anybody have vanity? Or any other word there? Everybody has futility? You don't know because you're following my thing and you've not got your Bible open? Cool, I got it. Um, anyway, some versions say vanity or some other word. 
If you look up the Greek word that's translated futility here, uh, it's matiotes, uh, which is the word translated vanity, if you're using a Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Ecclesiastes. Remember Ecclesiastes' theme? It opens up with vanity of vanities, or futility of futility, exact same word. All is futility. And then his whole, the, the thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes is basically everything done on earth, under heaven, as he puts it, is vain. It's futile. He goes through wisdom, that's futile, human wisdom. Uh, work, that's futile. Um, you know, pleasure, that's futile. Everything's futile. Everything's vain. Same word. All creation is subjected to futility. Think of the creation trying to get right, but it just can't quite get right or stay right because part of it's just the entropy, the, 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 just the, the way it's created, I think, since the fall. What happened to it since the fall? Part of it are, are things that we can actually point our fingers to and go, that wasn't great, you know, in retrospect. I was walking through, um, Shereen and I were on a hike two, three years ago up around Bowling Rock Boom. We were up there. We went on a day hike um, in the mountains and uh, a really pretty trail. But all along the trail, there was, you could tell it was an old orchard, like really old, like the apple trees were huge, thick. Uh, but there were, there were signs every you know, 100 feet or so with warnings. Don't eat any fruit that happens that these trees still produce. Uh, this is an orchard from the 20s or 30s or something like that. And uh, in fact, anything that grows out of this soil that is rooted within the top six inches or something like that, I don't remember the exact details, is contaminated because a pesticide that is now deemed unsafe and carcinogenic was widely used then. That's great. So forever, I mean, I don't know how many decades you can't kind of go there, dig, dig in the dirt and you're in danger. Can't use it. That was a great idea then though, wasn't it? And there was probably somebody going, oh, it's fine. How many times we've said that? This is the Dust Bowl, 1930s. Now, to be sure, the Dust Bowl had a lot to do with a big drought. But meteorological historians, yes, that is a field, have said that there were droughts worse than this one in North American history. There was one for about eight or nine years right before the Civil War that was worse in this same part, the Southern Great Plains, you know, Oklahoma, what became Oklahoma, Kansas, and all that. Uh, in the 30s, in the decades leading up to the 30s, um, there, there, there had been a whole lot of plowing. What had been native prairie grasses was all plowed up and planted in wheat for obvious reasons. People eat wheat, and they were making a lot of money for a while. In the 20s, a very wet decade. And, but they just plowed and plowed and didn't really rotate crops. And so most specialists in this field say that the, the, the problem with the Dust Bowl was it wasn't just the drought. It was that wheat couldn't handle the drought like the native prairie grasses did. They'd handle droughts and non-droughts back and forth for millennia. But the wheat died. It shriveled up. And so what you got was raw topsoil. So when the winds came, as they often do in the Midwest, blew the topsoil away. And storms like this were common in the 30s. One out of every four days, you couldn't even see a mile. Um, there was a, a new disease called dust pneumonia that killed thousands of people, literally clogging up their lungs by dust. Three million people end up leaving 
North Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, places like that, and going to where, Greg? California. California. <coughs> Grapes of Wrath, all that. Um, so, I mean, it's groaning. And I don't know how many, you know, we could go on and on and on with examples. I'm not going to do Chernobyl. We don't have time. It's going to be 20,000 years before the cesium radiation in, in the... In the the exclusion zone, there's pockets where people have just, I'm not leaving, where it's not that way, but there are places where, what's that? You are going to do Chernobyl. Huh, I am going to do Chernobyl. Well, not fully. I all, <laughs> I've got, Chernobyl is a whole lot more, but yeah. Creation's groaning, so we'll leave it at that. And the thing is, we groan, in, we groan with the same futility. Not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly, Right? Ecclesiastes talks about the fact that whatever we accomplish, we all die. But what happens to the children of man, Ecclesiastes 3, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All is futility, same word. We groan under the burden of our sins. You ever feel like trying to repent of some sin you've had a problem with over and over and over and over is futile? Join the club. That's what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, who holds people up to this standard of holiness and talks about being transformed by grace, says this, Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, nothing in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, Paul writes. In fact, he calls that a law. Think about the law of gravity, the law of entropy. He calls it a law. It's such a principle in his experience, and I think he's giving this to us because it's a principle in the human experience, that he finds it to be a law, Romans 7, 21, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, and he just sort of throws up his hands theologically and says, wretched man that I am, the only solution is Jesus. That's a kind of vanity, a futility. And then what about just suffering because of the sins, not only of ourselves, but the sins of other people? Think of all the Psalms which cry out, How long, O Lord, will you ignore me forever? My enemies <clears throat> have the upper hand on me. How shall we sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land where the Babylonian pagans have their foot on our throat? Think about the people waiting in the intertestamental period, as Ro the Greeks dominate, and then the Romans dominate. Simeon, waiting on the consolation of Israel. Anna, waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem. Suffering is universal. And overcoming it can seem hopeless. We fix one thing and something else pops up, right? We go, okay, we don't have communicable diseases. We got antibiotics for that. But then we, cancer proliferates. Or, you know, disease-resistant antibody, and it just, it's whack-a-mole, boom, boom, boom. And the creation would say to us, amen. It can seem like nothing will ever change, that that's our final, ultimate reality. But here's what Paul says in Romans 8. He says that's not our final, ultimate reality. Something else is coming, and that something is what he calls glory. Glory which we talked about last week as well, and we'll talk about it next week because it's a big part, a huge component of hope. Look what he says in Romans 8, verse 18. 
For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a comparison. And he says there is this incomparable, mind-blowing glory that is coming. You may suffer now, but glory will be revealed to us. And the creation, the whole world's hopes hang on this manifestation of glory to humans and in humans. The world's hanging on that. And remember last week what the word glory means? We talked about this. It's the idea, the root idea is heavy. It's not just glaring light and splendid. It does have those connotations as well. But the core idea is heaviness. Solidity. Something that is glorious is, is solid. It's thick, heavy, full of substance. It's, it's the most real thing you can imagine. The most solid thing. The most weighty thing. And in Romans 8, in that context, glory means freedom from the slavery of corruption. The creation, he says in verse 21, will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I want you to notice something else here. Creation's freedom from decay, and that's what this word means. You may have, the, if you're using the NIV, you'll have instead of corruption, it's not just talking about immorality. It's talking about it's corrupt, it's perishable. It wears out. It fails. It decays. But notice that creation's freedom, its liberation from this corruption or decay, is linked with the glory of the children of God at the end of verse 21. Isn't that interesting? Creation is waiting for its liberation, its deliverance for us to be glorified in some sense. So what is all this business about? Oh, one other thing here. Notice this. Not only creation, verse 23, but we ourselves. We're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And then he qualifies that phrase with this phrase. The redemption of our bodies. Now, he doesn't just say our redemption or the redemption of our souls or the redemption of our spirits, does he? And he didn't have to put that in there. So I'm assuming he did so on purpose. Kidding. Of course he did on purpose. But he picks out the Greek word for bodies. Creation is someday going to become imperishable. Creation is creation. It's this, it's stuff, it's matter. It's, it's heading to a new state where it's, it doesn't decay. And then he talks about our own bodies being redeemed. In, in some sense, these two, these two fates, these two futures go together. What is all this business about imperishable creation? and redeemed bodies. What is that about? Well, reading back through the lens of Old Testament prophecy becomes pretty obvious what this is talking about. You go back to places like Isaiah 65 and you get the same exact two things. A coming order in, 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 the, in the end, in the eschatos, in, you know, in the final consummation of all things, in which the whole creation is different. It's new. And in which the top denizen of that creation, us, human beings, are different too. Fundamentally, like elementally different. So, Isaiah 65 says in verse 17, For behold, God writes, I create new heavens and a new earth. Same language as Genesis 1, only the word new is added. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Behold, I create new heavens and earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem. So there's going to be a new Jerusalem. And her people will be a gladness. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. So somehow, in this new created world, a new heavens and earth, human beings are going to be so different that nobody ever weeps or cries or has distress anymore. Have you ever met a person like that? No, you haven't, because the person would be an alien. There's nobody that doesn't have that. They never get ticked off. They're never insecure. They're never worried. There's no anxiety. They never hurt. They never uh, you have to cry for somebody else or for themselves. Um, there's no weeping. There's no, nobody's met anybody like that because those people don't exist. But he says a, a time is coming when they will exist, and they'll populate a world that's so different as to be called a new heaven's and new earth. And there are several New Testament texts that pick this up. Romans 8 isn't the only one. This future uh, creation that is fuller, it's glorious, it's, it's more substantive in some way, more real, imperishable. Romans, uh, Revelation 21, verse 1, through most of chapter 22, the, the culminating vision of the book of Revelation, which is a book of visions, it's apocalypse, right? Things are being revealed. The culminating climax vision, Revelation 21 and 22, is a description, harking back to passages like Isaiah 65, quoting them directly, of the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 21, 1 says, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the same thing Isaiah just talked about, a whole new heavens and earth, a whole new world with a new Jerusalem. Notice it's coming down out of heaven. We often talk about going up. Here it's coming down. All right? Um, and then he says this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will dwell with them. They will be my, uh, my people, and I will be with them as their God, just like the Garden of Eden. In fact, the whole description in Revelation 21 and 22 is the Garden of Eden again. It's got a tree of life. It's got the river flowing out. The only difference is it says down in uh, chapter 22, verse 3, that the curse is no longer. So it's like Eden repaired. Put back to where it was supposed to be and back on that trajectory again. Headed to where it was supposed to go before it got sidetracked by human sin. And in this new Eden, there will be no more tears in the eyes of human beings. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. All of that is gone. It's a different world. <clears throat> a different kind of world. It is new. Behold, I am making all things new. So, what can we say about this? The God who, who created the world, who made the heavens and the earth in the first place, and called them good. I didn't do that. God, did. God said it's very good. That God, he doesn't just discard, he doesn't just trash the world. He redeems it and transforms it. And notice that in Romans 8, 17, he calls us heirs. He says, if we're God's children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God and we're fellow heirs with Christ. Well, isn't Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords? And he's saying that our inheritance is this new heavens, new earth? That's what he's going to inherit, so I'm assuming we're inheriting the same thing. And we're heirs with him. We're like co-heirs. 
Well, guess what? That's what the very last thing in, in, in Revelation uh, says about all this. The very last statement in that last vision in the book. There's some closing stuff after this, but this is the last statement in the last vision, the culminating climax vision of Revelation, uh, the book, is that they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We're going to rule with Christ. No wonder he calls us heirs of the king and with the king. All right, real quick. What is this glorious future? And I think all of us would agree that that's phenomenal. That, that is so inspiring. What, what, but what does it have to do with, you know, it's very glorious. What does it have to do with our less than glorious present? Because you're going to have to get up and go to work tomorrow. And some of us are sick. Or, and all of us are going to get sick. And from eternity's perspective, it's going to look like it was about a millisecond between each one of those events. Right? I mean, we, we, we have heartache. We have relationship problems. There are marriage problems. There are problems between parents and children and, and that, that go on past childhood. Let's be real. There are all kinds of setbacks. We have a less than glorious present if we're human. How does the glorious future relate to our present reality? And the answer to that question is hope. If it's going to relate, if the future that is glorious, God's future that He promises, is going to be relevant for your and my present, it will do so through hope. The glory is both already and not yet. We have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we still groan inwardly. We already have the first fruits, but we don't have the culmination of all that, or, yet we, or, or we wouldn't be groaning still. He says, to use another metaphor in verse 22, it's like uh, the pains of childbirth. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. When you're, when, I, I've not had a baby uh, lately, but if you, you know, I was, I, I watched three babies be born. And when you're going through labor, when one is going through labor, um, you, there's no turning back. The baby's coming. The process has been launched already, right? So there's a sense in which it's already here, and yet it's not here in the way that it's going to be when the pain's over and you've got the baby in your arms. That's a, a wonderful analogy. Nobody in the middle of the childbirth process, like they're, they're going through labor, the baby is being born, right? The breathing, everything like that, the get out of here, get out of my face, husband, all that. It's going on, you know? Um, nobody says, well, this is, you know, in the remote future, or this isn't certain. No, it, it's, 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 it's completely certain, and yet it's not there in the consummate sense that it will be moments later. That's the analogy being used. So hope is what links the not yet with the now. Hope makes the not yet an already, in a sense. It's like we're people from the future because we so believe in and buy into God's good future. We so trust His promises that we live now as if they're already here. That's what hope is. I want to give you one illustration, and then we'll skip the last half page of my sermon, which already was cut way, 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 way back, I promise. Um, anyway, I'm only at 40 minutes because I got up there at 12, 12.16. I'm at 39 minutes. Um, 
There was this illustration, maybe you've heard about this. There was this illustration done with some, some rats back in the 50s by this Johns Hopkins professor, scientist named Kurt Richter. And he, he was, it's kind of a gruesome experiment. He was wanting to find out how, how long it took before rats would drown. Like how long can they swim? It sounds like an eight-year-old thing. But he really, he really got buckets, filled them half with water, and put a rat, a little you know, lab-raised domestic rat in each one, and let them swim. Um, well, first of all, he used uh, uh, wild rats. And the wild rats would swim about 15 minutes and drown every time. Then when he put the domestic rats in, he noticed they would swim for like 50 to 60 hours total. And it was amazing because rats are no, wild rats are known to be really good swimmers. But in his experiment, they would just sort of like, eh. So they started looking at what's the reason for that? And postulated that because the lab rats were so used to being put in a situation and out of a situation back and forth by researchers, that they didn't think that anything they were going through was going to be permanent. And so they started examining it with that hypothesis in mind. And basically arrived, there was no physical difference. In fact, that the wild rats might have been healthier in some ways and more aggressive, you would think would swim more, you know, naturally. But they, they arrived at the, the conclusion that it was hope. They actually used that word, hope, because the domestic rats believed in some level that that wasn't going to last forever. And that incentivized them to swim for what literally became 240 times more duration than the ones who believe there's no hope. This is probably why he says in verse 24 of Romans 8, in this hope we are saved. Hope that is seen is not hope. You haven't realized it yet. It's still hope. It's still yet distant. Still not yet. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait with patience and we wait with eagerness. And that's very different from a world which is becoming more and more cynical where anxiety is often resorted to with denial or escapism, and we end up in addiction and all sorts of false saviors. Or we just keep ourselves busy. That's sort of the respectable you know, middle-class way. I'll just work and act like that part of my world isn't my world until something blows up and you're like, I guess, I guess it is. I guess I'm going to face the music like everybody else. Everybody suffers. Everybody's waiting in some fashion. Are we waiting with hope? Or are we trusting the promises of God? Next week, we'll have part three of that. I appreciate your attention today. Come back next week, and we'll talk about what it is that is uh, the face of hope. I'm going to break it down to like its, its final essence. Thank you. Um, if you're here today, and, and we can help you in some way by praying for you, uh, baptizing you into Christ for the remission of sins, we have a baptistry prepared, setting up a Bible study. We're here to help in any way that we can. Uh, and we can, we can study the Bible together if that's uh, your interest. Just let us know by coming to the uh, inner circle of chairs here while we all together stand and sing.